scriptures to Genesis chapter 44. We are getting towards the end of our time in Genesis together. When I started, I thought, I can't see a, a time when we would finish this. And here we are looking into Hebrews is our next book we're going to be looking at together. So as I told you earlier, I'd encourage you to not only read the chapter ahead where we're preaching, but maybe in your devotions read over Hebrews again and again and again. That would be profitable for you to prepare your hearts for God's word to be preached. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, without you, these are words without context. Without you, these are words without power. But you tell us that you ordained this method so that you can speak to your people. Do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Prior to 1970, Egypt suffered from a multitude of problems, including lack of irrigation, insufficient power for a growing economy, as well as the perennial flooding of the Nile, which would take swaths of crops away, but deposit rich sediment. Completed in 1970, the perfect solution was a dam to be built. Many, some of you have lived through the time. In 1960, they started it. In 1970, they finished the Aswan Dam in the Nile. It seemed to be the solution to all their problems. It created a huge lake, Lake Nasser, that they could use for irrigation and water. It provided hydroelectric power. Egypt so, that so desperately needed. And most of all, it controlled the flooding of the Nile. The solution, however, was a costly one. Because the Nile's flooding was now controlled, the rich sediment that Egypt had depended on, and, and as a matter of fact, made it a superpower of the ancient world for, for millennia, was no longer deposited on its banks, and it crippled the crop production. The dam also has been blamed for the rapid erosion of coastline, for increased soil salinity, all kinds of health problems. And not to mention, near and dear to my heart, when they built that dam, the lake covered over a wealth of archaeological discoveries. What seemed so positive when it was first envisioned had become a complicated and costly solution. Today, in our text, we're going to look at the climax of a very complicated plan and the amazingly costly solution that came out of it. Look with me at chapter 44, starting in verse 1. God's word says, He then commanded his steward, this is Joseph, He then commanded his steward of the house, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money into the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. 
As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after these men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and from this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them and spoke to them these words, they said, Why does the Lord speak to words like these to us? Behold, our money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, they were still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my servants, my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has been found. But he, Joseph, said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Let's pause there for a second. At the door last week, after last week's sermon, a woman commented to me that she loves the Joseph story. She loves this story. One of her favorite stories in all of Scripture, as she said. My head was nodding in affirmation. And then she said something to the effect of, I love it because it's so satisfying to see Joseph stick it to his brothers. Now, to be honest, I don't know if you are here, and I'm sorry if you are. I didn't say this at the time, but if we had 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 more time last week, I would have said this to you. That's not at all how I see this story. That's not at all how I see chapter 42, 43, and 44. I read it as a well-crafted, calculated plan to guide his brothers to see their sin. A design in order to prepare the path for reconciliation. I see it as as a calculated, well-thought-through plan to bring a broken family back together. As I read these scriptures, I see design in everything that Joseph does here. Uh, commentator Ian Duguid reads, 
wrote this about Joseph. He said, Joseph's ability to forgive his brothers is perhaps unmatched in all of the Old Testament. By their wickedness, the brothers caused him to be sold into slavery so that the best years of Joseph's life were spent in various forms of servitude and imprisonment. Yet, when God presented him with the golden opportunity to make his brothers pay for their crimes, he passed it up. Instead, he writes, he devised a complicated and costly plan for their redemption. I think you would agree that this plan that Joseph has here is absolutely complicated. It is complicated. It spans four whole chapters and bleeds into a fifth. And Joseph did not make this up as he was going along. It was calculated. And I want us to just look at it very briefly in the three stages, perhaps, that that will help us to understand this plan. The harsh visit, the generous visit, and then the silver cup moment. So we have a harsh visit way back in chapter 42. His plan is put into action when his ten brothers, if you remember, show up in his court. They're, they're, the, the famine is, is worldwide at this point, and, and they go, come down from Canaan, and they enter into Egypt that has food because God had, had given the, the dream interpretation to Joseph, and Joseph had been put second in charge in the nation to when the seven years of plenty to store some food so that when the famine comes, he can fulfill his role in helping the world stay alive. So the brothers come down, they show up in his court. And in the first encounter, if you remember, he treats his brothers pretty harshly, right? He really applies tremendous pressure, and we, and we sat in that pressure a couple weeks ago. And what Joseph was saying how he was treating them, not out of bitterness and anger, not out of revenge or to stick it to his brothers, but in order to awaken their consciences. Do you remember that? In order to soften their consciences. In order to produce what we called back then, a couple weeks ago, good guilt. Guilt that leads to sorrow, that leads to repentance, right? Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, do they? So he puts his plan into action. He accuses them, if you remember, four times of being spies. Coming down and spying out the land. Serious charge. Executional charge. He imprisons them for three days, all the brothers, to let them think about it for a while. Like when we put our kids up up in their room. Just, you just go think about this for a while, what you've done. Eventually he binds one of the brothers right in front of their their, their eyes, do you remember that when he brings them out and he takes Simeon and he binds Simeon? Could you imagine that? And then takes him away. And he lets them go free. He wants to start stirring their memories. In other words, he creates a situation similar to what it was like 20 years ago for him. He wants to see how they'll react He's applying pressure to see what their character, if their character has changed at all. He wants to see if they remember what they did 20 years ago. And they do. If you remember in that chapter, he is speaking to them through an interpreter, an Egyptian, 
but he still knows Hebrew. And when they start talking among themselves in Hebrew, he hears, he overhears them confessing about what they did those many years ago. Ah, they remember. Before he sets them to go back to Canaan, he applies, he puts the next part of his plan into place. He tells them, you can come back here and for more food, but you won't even get in the door unless you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin. The second part of Joseph's plan unfolds in chapter 43, which is what we're calling the generous visit. Brothers return and Joseph invites them to his house for a meal. They think that this is trouble. <laughs> he's going to imprison us. He's, he's just taking us, setting us aside because he thinks we stole that silver. But Joseph sends his steward to reassure them. Listen, we know about the money. It was us who put it there. You, we know you didn't steal it. He releases his brother Simeon. Brings him out of the dungeon, detained in order to guarantee their return. Joseph then dines extravagantly with them. It's at the end of the last chapter, eating and drinking with them. Even giving Benjamin a five-fold portion, setting him aside. They're relaxed. They think all is well which really sets up the third part of his plan. And that brings us to our text today. The silver cup moment. They've prepared to leave after a wild night of eating and drinking. The last verse there, the Mary, can be also be translated drunk. I imagine that that is the case and was the case. So they're nursing hangovers and getting their donkeys ready to go. And Joseph hatches the final part of his complicated master plan. He tells the steward to not only put the, the silver, the, the, the money back in to their sacks once again, but he tells them, take my silver cup, the one they saw me drink out of last night, and put it in Benjamin's sack. Put it in the youngest. Hide it there. And shortly after they leave, he commands this same steward to go after them and accuse them of theft. Here it is. Of repaying evil for good, of stealing the silver cup. Now, I want to pause here and, and recognize that Joseph is using the same means to accuse them that the brothers sold him into slavery with silver. You can't miss those things. And of course, they, they're accused and they deny this. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Listen, we're in good graces with this guy. We just had a great time with this guy. Why would we do this? So convinced of the untruth of the accusation that they make a staggering and daring offer in verse 9. Look at it. It says, listen, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die and will be your servants. When the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, they're astonished and grief-stricken. It says there they tear their clothes. Again, don't miss the parallels with what Jacob did when he found out that Joseph 
was going to die, was dead. They return to Egypt and come before Joseph. And Judah, speaking for the whole family, in, in, in verse 16, you can look at it yourself, he says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak of? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are the, your Lord's servants, both we and also whose hand has been in the cup. Please read this in context. He is confessing to a stranger, what they think is a stranger, Zarephath, mighty Zarephath of Egypt, that they're guilty of something. He would not know what they're guilty of. He's confessing a a past guilt, that that, that justice is going on here. That they deserve punishment and slavery for something in their past. Now, a stranger wouldn't be able to pick up on that. But Joseph does because he set this whole thing up. Judah then makes the offer that all the brothers will stay and serve the sentence. Right? Both we and whose hand is on the cup will all pay for this. We're all staying. We're all your slaves. And here is the moment where Joseph's plan comes together. Look at verse 17. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Here it is. Only Benjamin must pay. The rest can go free. His complicated plan has brought it full circle. Only the one, only one will be enslaved. The brothers go free. Only one will be thrown into a pit and the rest will go free. Only one will be thrown into a pit over silver. The rest will go free. Exactly how it was 20 years ago with him. Joseph's complicated plan has brought us to this tipping point, but also to a question. Many people, when they read the scriptures, many people, when they read the Old Testament, they say, why did God do it that way? Why did God, why is God's plan that way? One way to look at the Bible narrative is through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, right? Four categories. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Or I I actually like better creation, rebellion, plus you get the R in there, redemption, restoration. And the Bible is really, the Old Testament is, is really the comma between rebellion and restoration. The Old Testament is that space between those two words. Genesis 3 to Matthew 1 
is the Old Testament. 39 books of the Bible. 929 chapters between Genesis 3 and Matthew 1. 23,145 verses to get from rebellion to redemption. And it's pretty complicated along the way, isn't it? It's a complicated plan. We're talking about thousands of years from the federal headship of Adam to enduring our rebellion to the complicated fallout of sin. From the flood judgment to choosing a line of salvation, starting with Noah and Shem, goes down through the line, get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you have to go through all of, of those names that are in Chronicles and Numbers. Why are they keeping track of those names? Why are they keeping track of the lineage of David so meticulously? That's complicated. It goes from the complicated plan of getting God's people down into Egypt so they can flourish to 400 years later, the complication of getting them out of slavery and into the complicated wilderness, into the complication of conquering the promised land, into the giving them the complicated law and sacrificial system, to the complications of the exile, to getting them back from the exile, to getting them rebuilding the temple that they continually just get derailed on, to the 400 years of silence. Why such a complicated plan? Why 23,145 verses to get from rebellion to redemption? Why couldn't he just make it simple? Right? You and I would do it differently. Let's just make this simple. Well, he did that so he could set up a costly solution. which is foreshadowed here in our text. Judah has just offered that he and all his brothers will stay and pay, and Joseph tells him, nope, only one. And we pick up our reading in verse 18. When Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in your Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and an old man and a younger brother, the child in his old age. His brother is dead and he is alone, left with his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. So he said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should ever leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless the youngest comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Then we went back to your servant, my father, and told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. 
If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless the youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring me down with my gray hairs to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up, as my life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah retells the backstory of Jacob's reluctance to let Benjamin go, of the pleas to their father, and finally to Judah's pledge of safety. And it is in that pledge that Joseph, Joseph's complicated plan is brought to its climax. Judah claimed that he would be a pledge of safety to, jo- to Jacob, right? That his life is bound up with the boy's. And then Judah makes a staggering offer in verse 33. Look at that. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Let him go free and I'll stay. Let everybody go and I'll take the punishment. Judah comes up with a very costly solution for him. I'll take the blame for the cup. Take out your anger on me not him. Substitute me for him. Let me take the wrath for the cup. Is any of this sounding familiar? I mean, it should, because that was God's costly solution as well. His complicated plan leads right up to the pivotal moment 3,800 years later in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? Jesus says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus is struggling with the same problem Judah has. Somebody has to pay, not for stolen silver this time, but for heinous sin. Anger has to be satisfied. Not, but not Joseph's anger, God's anger towards sin and towards rebellion. And the costly solution is substitution. The costly solution is substitution. That is Jesus' struggle, isn't it? He has his life bound up with the life of humanity right there. Is there any other way God 
that you can forgive them and I can live too. That I don't have to stay. That I don't have to be punished. Can the cup of wrath be satisfied any other way? That's the, that's the question Jesus is asking. And the answer God gives is no. No. This way. The costly solution is substitution. And Jesus ultimately says the same thing that Judah says and does the same thing that Judah does. I'll take the blame. That's what Jesus said. I'll be, I will be their pledge of safety. Let me be blamed for having the cup. Let me have the cup of your wrath. Let me, your servant, be their substitute. The only difference is when we look at at, at chapter 44 in Genesis, the stakes are so much higher when we come to Matthew in the New Testament. Because Judah will be a slave in Egypt. Jesus is going to suffer in hell. Judah is going to pay for the silver cup. Jesus is going to drink the cup of wrath. Judah will live so that others go free, but Jesus will die so that others can live. Jeffrey Ebert was five years old when it happened. It was in an age before seatbelts and airbags. His family was driving home at night on a two-lane road and he was sitting on his mother's lap when another car driven by a drunk driver swerved into their lane and hit them head-on. He recalls, I don't have any memory of the collision. I do recall the fear and confusion I felt as I saw myself literally covered in blood from head to toe. Then I learned that the blood wasn't mine, but it was my mother's. In that split second, when the two cars were about to collide, she instinctively curled her body around mine. It was her body that slammed against the dashboard, her head that shattered the windshield. She took the impact of the collision so that I wouldn't have to. In a similar but more significant way, Jesus took the impact of our sin so that we wouldn't have to. God substituted himself. He took the penalty for our sin. He died and suffered so that we don't have to. That was God's complicated plan and costly solution. It's because he substituted himself for us that we can have a restored relationship with God our Father. That's what's being foreshadowed here in the next chapter. And Just look at verse 1. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried out, Make everyone go out of the room from me. So no one stayed. And there was Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Go down to verse 14. Then he fell upon his brothers, his Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked to him. Relationship restored. That's 
what God's costly solution is all about. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. A restored relationship with God. Having sweet communion with God. I mean, that's what we're about to, to move into, brothers and sisters. Having sweet communion with God. Yes, it's a horizontal thing in, in the body, but much more significantly, it's a vertical thing. It should bring us to tears to see the lengths that God went to restore that relationship. It should bring you to tears. I'm not asking for your tears, but it should move you when we do communion. Let's take a few minutes and perhaps in your bulletin there there's some helps in confessing to the Lord. We had an earlier time of confession. It might be nice to take a moment or two to read through that confession and personalize that confession as we come into the sweet communion that is provided through our Lord's sacrifice.